0: With an infinite number of monkeys, typewriters, and time, one of them will write the complete works of Shakespeare. And so with generative AI, we've just given everyone infinite monkeys. The problem is we haven't given them infinite time and determination to be able to work out if the content they're creating is any good.
1: Welcome everyone to the AI Marketing Lab where we delve deep into the innovative world of artificial intelligence and its transformative impact on the marketing landscape. I'm your host, Alex Montes, EVP of Marketing at Bed Labs. We're here to spotlight the luminaries, the visionary, the experts who are shaping the future of how we market and communicate in an AI-driven world. We're gonna take a journey with our guests on this podcast. We're gonna walk through their careers. We will dissect the nuances, the chips and the strategies that have propelled them to the forefront of marketing while thinking how AI is disrupting their world. Our mission is to uncover how marketers are using artificial intelligence as not just a tool, but a revolution in thinking, strategizing and executing. So whether you are a seasoned marketer or just AI curious, buckle up, because we're about to dive deep into the fascinating convergence of technology and creativity. Welcome to the journey. Let's get our episode started.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of the Ben Labs AI Marketing Podcast. And I'm super excited today. Today, I get to talk to one of our colleagues, Alex McFadden. I've been working with him for three years. The guy is an absolute monster when it comes to technology, when it comes to really, um, thinking about trends, really thinking about the future. He's our head of technology and evangelism here at Van Labs. Um, fun fact about Alex McFadden, he looks much taller in real life. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Alex McFadden, on top of, of, of just being an extremely intelligent, smart person, is somebody that you probably have to experience, uh, in real life. So, uh, Alex, Excited to have you here today. Excited to learn a little bit more about you. But yeah, maybe could you tell us a little bit more about your career, your journey in the tech industry, and how you transitioned into AI and, and the things that now you're working on at Ben Labs?
0: Absolutely, thank you very much, Alex. Great to be on the uh, podcast with you. Yeah, I am. I am six foot six, so I'm tall. I always warn people when I give them interviews and when I meet them first time on uh, on Zoom. Like I come across, I am much taller than I look. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, as you might be able to tell by my accent, I'm not. I'm not an American. I'm uh, I'm English. I'm based out of London. Um, and in terms of my career, I've been working with creators on the technology side for. Uh, it's probably getting on for two decades, which is crazy. Um, so I started out my career uh, working as a contractor, doing uh, setting up my own consultancy, working primarily with open source technologies to help small business, small and medium businesses in many cases, doing marketing-type things. That then evolved, uh, and I got involved with a startup called Demotics. And Demotics was a citizen journalism platform where we would help creators, uh, in this case photographers, uh, have distribution for their content. They would upload it to Demotics. Demotics would fact check it using technology and using human expertise, and then act as the distribution point to people like The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, The Guardian, et cetera. Uh, and if the content was used it was sold 50 50 with the creator so we were kind of uh, one of those 1.0 businesses uh, in the early days of the internet really enabling creators to do what they loved and to get paid for it um that business was then acquired by by Corbis Images, uh, which then morphed into what is now Ben. So I've been, I've been with the same company for a very long time, um, but those themes of technology and creator have been winding through my career throughout, as has AI. I actually went to university to study AI. Uh, way back in the day, I wrote a bot to play poker. That was my final year dissertation. Uh, it could beat me, but that's more of a comment on my lack of poker skills rather than the bots. Um, but yeah and AI has been another one of those threads that keeps on coming back and coming back and so I've had the huge privilege of working on the likes, uh, alongside the likes of Tyler Falkman uh, and some of our other folks here at Penn to make some some really interesting AI and some really practical applications of these um, really high technology solutions.
2: Amazing. I'm going to I'm going to get into it but before I go why did why did you decide to do a poker game? Why poker?
0: So poker is a really interesting problem from an AI perspective because um, it's a, a game of imperfect information and competing uh-huh. agents. So unlike chess where you can see the whole chess board and with enough computing power, especially as we start talking about quantum, you can work out every possible move from where you are now to winning. And that's what some of those early AIs like Deep Blue and things like that, they were using those sorts of brute force techniques in order to be able to beat humans. Poker is an altogether different problem because of the whole cards, because you don't know what those two cards are. You can kind of guess by the way that they behave, but that then brings in a whole new layer of subdiffusion and of, of, of understanding uh, that you have to start doing opponent modeling. You have to kind of start thinking, they behave in this way when they've got aces, they behave in this way when they've got seven deuce. That means I could behave in a different way when those oh. things happen. And so from an AI learning perspective, poker is a really fascinating field. Um, the University of Alberta, Alberta, sorry, in Canada, built an amazing uh, framework which I based a lot of my work on. Um, yeah, and it, plus it's fun, right? Like at university, I used to play poker with some of my friends. I thought maybe I could get an AI that could uh, could teach me how to beat them.
2: Yeah, part of the part of the reason I ask, and and again, I know um, we'll come back to it very soon. I feel like poker is the game that most resembles life. Like you, I've obviously obviously I've, I've, a lot of people talk about like what's your move in chess or but chess is a perfect game while life is imperfect. So what you have to do in real life is think in bets. And like one of my favorite books is that thinking in bets. And it's also about like the probability that while you have a bad card or a bad hand, you can still do okay. You can still win. Or the other way around, you can have a perfect hand and still lose. And I feel like poker is kind of like a perfect analogy of life. And it's interested that, and and, and, like I would be interested in in like, wow, how is AI managing this? Because at the end of the day, I I said, the way I think about AI is that it's something that crunches all probabilities, right? Like if I think about like Minority Report and like Tom Cruise way back in the day, What it had, essentially, was a big computer that was taking all data in order to create a a prediction, right? And a lot of what AI does is that. But in in poker, probably you cannot do that. You can get as close to as possible while not having a perfect prediction, and I find that interesting. So yeah.
0: It's it's quite interesting. Uh, The early phases of the poker game, actually, like pre-flop, there is like a mathematical solution for that. And there is like a perfect way to play whatever hand you have based on the other, especially in heads up when it's only two people. But a bit like in real life, the more players that you have at the game, the more complicated it becomes because now you're having to worry about interactions and doing all sorts of other things. It's, 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 yeah, poker is a fas- fascinating, fascinating game. There's actually a great book uh, called The Biggest Bluff, which is, to your point, about uh, how people use poker for different things. This is an ex- this is like a self-help book uh, of how someone applied the principles of poker. Like, do you, you mentioned bad beats there, like you've played the game perfectly, but it just so happened they had the one card that was, that w- that was gonna break your per- almost perfect hand. These things happen. But the key part on that, and it's about, and it goes back to reinforcement learning, is you don't necessarily want to just pay attention to the outcome. You want to pay attention to the process because the process may still have been right. And ninety-nine times out of a hundred, you'll get the right result. But it's that one time that potentially you had that bad beat, which uh, poker players talk about a lot. But yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating game.
2: All right. So I think I think this kind of leads us nicely into AI and. How you know? How would you define it? Because we did we we added two things just talking about poker, the fact of looking into probabilities, but there's there's this process of your learning of what happened in the prior hand, right? So I hear about machine learning, and theoretically that's AI. I I always thought it was probability to the max, right? Like like I that's my, I thought that's what AI is. In your opinion, what is AI? and then you know how has it evolved since you study since you did this game
0: yeah it's a, it's a fascinating question i mean ai obviously it stands for artificial intelligence so depending on how uh, generic you want to be anything which gives you artificial intelligence as in not a human thinking something that but that results in a intelligent response, you could class as AI. So even basic algorithms and things like that, you could class as AI if you wanted to be generous. I think most people, when they talk about AI, are actually talking about specifically machine learning, which is the thing that you were talking about there, and more specifically reinforcement learning. I mean, AI has been around since the 80s. There was a huge boom of of interest in AI, um, but it kind of died away because we basically didn't have the computing power necessary to do a lot of the things that we now, we now do. Um, in terms of reinforcement learning. There was then another big spike when Deep Blue, maybe a name that you've heard of, it was a big IBM mm-hmm. machine that beat Kasparov at, at chess. There was a big spike of AI around then, but once again, it, it tailed off. But recently, we've seen a huge explosion, and that's due in in large part due to uh, graphical processing units, the same things that make the wonderful graphics in your Xbox or in your PlayStation or on the computer games. People have repurposed the processing power of those units to be able to leverage AI, and that's really jumped things forward. Um, The other big thing that's changed recently, and I know that probably most people listening to this will have heard, generative AI. There's been a kind of change in, in the approach that we've taken to AI. Up until now, we've really been talking about discriminative AI, uh, predictive AI, which is where you take a whole bunch of data, you train an AI on it, you give it a new piece of data, and you ask it which set of things, which bucket, what, which in your data set, which piece of data does this look most like? Mm. And you can use that for all sorts of things, for facial recognition, handwriting, chess, lots and lots of pattern recognition problems can fall into that discriminative AI. But generative is fundamentally different. With generative, you can take the same data set, you can train it in obviously a very different way, but instead of going to the model and saying, I've got a new piece of data, what does this look like? You're going to the model and saying, I want you to make me a new piece of data that looks like this. And that's when people talk about prompting, that's what that prompt is, is, is a description of the piece of data that you want. And the model then applies that to the data that it's got and gives you something net new that looks like a bit the data that it already knows about. And that's a fundamental shift in the way that these models have been generated and, and sorry have been have been constructed. But the really big thing that's happened in the last literally year, uh, like think about it, this time last year, no one was talking about generative AI. Like ChatGPT. I don't think it even been released. I think it was maybe around November. I'd have to check my dates. But what happened was with these generative models is they all of a sudden started being able to do things they couldn't do before. The key thing with generative is you don't really know what it's capable of doing until you ask it. You have to ask it the question to see if it produces the right answer. And it's not a classification problem where, which, you can, which you can pretest with discriminative AI. And what happened late last year is these models starting to get complex enough that they could start solving problems we didn't know that they could solve. So all of a sudden, they were able to uh, predict the next word in a sentence or they were able to add two numbers together and give you the right answer. And those dominoes, those, those uh, tipping points, those emergent behaviors started happening and then repeatedly happened. And it went from being able to predict the next word in a sentence to doing mathematical calculations, to writing poems, to passing the bar exam in the space of like three months. And that's why it's been such a huge explosion in the last year, because the exponential gain of the ability of these models has been, has been phenomenal. That and the fact that you can just talk to it, right? Unlike the, the the previous ones, where you could only really appreciate how smart Deep Blue was if you were Gary Kasparov and you had that level of chess ability. Now, anyone who can type can talk to GBT and be amazed at the content that it's producing.
2: Is that what multi model is? When you when you're talking so to things.
0: Yeah, model multimodal is slightly different. So multimodal refers to the mediums by which that the model has been trained on and is capable of using. So oh. ChatGPT is a single model mode, sorry, model. So it just uses text. So you can give it a question, you can give it a prompt in text and it can respond in text. Um DALI2, though, and Mid they are bimodal. So you can give it a prompt in text and it will give you a response as an image. Equally, and some people don't know this. Some models like that, you can actually give it a, a prompt as an image, and it will then give you the text back using the same model. And so you can translate between those. But multimodal is what people most mean when they talk about that is when you add more than two. So you'd add text, you'd add video, you'd add audio, you could add uh, smell if you could ha- if you could make an AI build to generate smells. Like it's all of these different or three D, for example, is another one. And by adding all of these together, you can start translating between them. So you could give it a prompt in a in text format and get an output as an image and sound, for example. And that's where things start to get really interesting.
2: So one, one last question in this vein, but basically I hear that prompting eventually is gonna go away because multi-model is gonna replace it. And what I came to understand was, I don't need to like go to Mid Journey and, and do this exact, like description of the moon when it's red, I can talk to it and it'll know a little bit more. I can, you know, is is that kind of like is multi-model something that will allow us that will allow prompting the way it is now to kind of like evolve a little bit more because now you can interact in different ways.
0: Yeah, I think it's really gonna help when you know you're trying imagine trying to ask uh, an AI what song you're thinking of right? Through text alone. That's really hard. Like maybe you can give it some lyrics, but how do you give the sense of rhythm to an AI if you're trying to prompt it with that information? So I think in those situations, it's going to be really helpful so that you can communicate in a much more natural way to be able to get the answer that you want. That's one thing. I think the other reason why prompting in its current form I think is, is, a, is a stepping stone, is, is we are very much at the beginning. If you think about Google specifically and the search results that you get from that, if you're logged in as you, like if I go in and I do a, do a search for, uh, I'm trying to think of a programming term, like even Boolean or something like that, even a, any specific thing, because I constantly search for programming related content, it's gonna know, but given the context of me, that that's the right piece of information to surface. That's essentially, I mean, it's not an AI in the same respect where it's not a generative AI yet, uh, but it's using the context of me and the previous things that I've done in order to be able to improve the way that I'm speaking to it. And I think the same will be true of context-driven prompting is that it's going to be based on more about what it understands about you so that you have to be less hyper-specific in the way that you prompt.
2: Got it. Awesome. All right. So thank you so much for, I think now we have a good baseline of what AI is different types of AI, and a little bit about where it's going, but we'll come back to that. Now, I want to talk about what you're building here at Ben Labs. Can you tell us the inspiration behind developing um, an AI tool for audience identification? Or honestly, if it's broader than that, feel free to like, enlighten us and tell us more about what you're, what is going on.
0: Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting problem. I mean, obviously everyone knows that uh, influencer marketing is hugely successful and many people, when they first get into influencer marketing, see quite a lot of success, specifically brands, because they end up working with creators that they really understand on an intrinsic level. Normally it's the ones they follow already or that have reached out to them. They're they're basically pre pre pre-packaged brand ambassadors who are ready to go, who live your ethos. They get you, you get them. It works great. And their audience, you are a perfect match. Like, Brilliant, wonderful, all the way to the bank. The problem is there's not many of them um, and they already have to know about you and you have to know about them. And that's quite a difficult problem to solve. There's millions, I think uh, I think it's 350, no, sorry, 500 million creators and productions out there in the world. I can't remember, the number keeps on going up. Um, but even if you limit it to, say, for instance, YouTube, and even if it's limited only to YouTubers with over a million followers, that's still somewhere in the region. I think it's like 56,000 uh, 56, of them, which is enough to fill a football stadium. This is still a number that's just too big for humans to really understand on a on a human level. Like imagine trying to watch that many creators as a, as a single person. It's just not possible. And so that's where uh, AIs and specifically... Uh, AIs that can leverage unstructured data really come in Mm -hmm. to be able to understand this huge scale and be able to find those perfect matches. And that's really why we've been approaching this problem is because there is so much opportunity out there in terms of potentially perfect creators for you or your brand, but you need to know they exist. Mm. The other reason why I think it's really important that these sorts of technologies exist is it's very easy when you're running a creative campaign or when you're in a pinch and you really need to to run uh, a piece of marketing to go back to the same people you've already worked with, the tried and true, right? Which is great and maybe that'll work, but it means that you're really missing out on all of these new and upcomers, these people who have who you've never worked with before, who've maybe never even worked with a brand before. How do you find them? How do you find these people who are absolutely perfect for you but that you don't even know exist? And that was the problem that we really tried to solve with this audience modeling technique and um, it's working really well. It's working really, really well. Um, But the fundamental approach that we have is we're not really trying to understand the creator for the creator's sake. We're trying to understand the creator as a proxy for the audience, because that's what we're really trying to do is we're trying to connect with the audience and we're trying to understand it from an audience centric point of view.
2: So could you tell me a little bit more about that? Because um, when you started the description, you started talking about creators and YouTubers. But if I'm a brand, I'm trying to figure out who my audience is. So how how do those two overlap?
0: Yeah, so it's really interesting. So obviously, if you're a creator or if you're a brand, you can log into the platforms and you can see the demographics and things of your audience. You can see how old they are, perhaps, maybe what countries they're coming from, those sorts of things, Um, which is useful, or it can be, but it can also be quite misleading, Um, There's a great slide, and unfortunately, I don't have the visual, but it has uh, Prince Charles on one side and Ozzy Osbourne on the other. Some of you may have seen this. But from a demographics perspective, they're identical. But yet, you could look at their YouTube consumption habits, and I reckon you'd probably be able to tell them apart pretty quickly. And that's really what's key here, is it's the psychographic data. It's the behavioral data of what they're trying to engage with that's so important when it comes to defining an audience.
2: Got it. So the tool that you're building is able to, A, identify creators that make sense for my particular audience and it also exactly. tells me these are audiences that you haven't thought about is that correct
0: sort of so what it does is it's looking at the your your primary consumers the people who are most uh, the audience clusters that are most consuming your content but mm-hmm. what we've done is we've managed to cluster those audiences based on the other content that they consume so Say that they're really inter- interested in pets, for example. So there may be a pet cluster. They may also be interested in rock music. There may be a rock music cluster, and there also may be a technology cluster, for example, or a marketing cluster. Let's say so. People who watch this podcast would probably their core audience would probably be the marketing uh, would be the marketing audience because that's most of the content they consume. But people are not single faceted. They may also be rock music fans. They may also be technologists. They may also be pet lovers. And so if you're trying to access that audience, yes, you can get them in your core, but as an expansion, we might do a piece, a marketing podcast on marketing for pet brands, because it turns out that there's a large crossover of our specific audience, maybe no other podcast, but our specific audience has a couple of people in that pet enthusiast area that, and that could indicate that there's a really good crossover for you to do more content that's maybe pet focused. And those are the sorts of insights that this tool starts to bring out. and it's been it's been fascinating to uh, to see it. and and the the most edifying part for me is when I'm showing it to clients or showing it to creators, they think I'm an expert in them because we bring this tool up and we can show a couple of things and we can go, these are the ones that are really close to you. Here's an audience over there. but and, and there's been a few times when I've been demoing it, and I've pulled up an account and I've been like, uh-oh has it made a mistake like why is it showing me a a a building tricks web uh, inst, uh instagrammer for a sports brand nothing to do sports and building building sites nothing to do with each other but then when you actually roll it back actually a lot of the people who are going to be consuming the the building sites trick shots videos are probably pretty ardent sports fans and it's for this yeah. specific brand that was the case it's those sort of like Things that, in retrospect, that you see and you're like, "Oh my goodness, this makes so much sense." But it's not. It's that they're innovative jumps that it takes. It takes that prompt, if you like, to uh, to get to.
2: Yeah, one of the examples. I have two examples always. I think like if you're a beauty brand, you're always thinking, "Well, Kim Kardashian, Kylie Jenner." But I don't know. There may be a bunch of carpenters that. <laughs> <laughs> may use your brand because they need to get their hands soft after doing all that work. So that is, that, that is one. I always think about myself. I love romantic comedies and reality TV. I don't think that's what you would think when you first meet me, right? A person of color, mid thirties or late thirties now. Oof, and um in, in New York city. I'm like, you know, I went to when I went to London. I was like, "Hey, this is this is where they filmed the movie Notting Hill. Let's let's go over there. Let's go over there because that that's the that one of my fave Julia Roberts things." And I don't think that's apparent when you think about demographics when you think about things like that. That no. there are other things that come out of that. So thank right. you so much for for kind of like going into that. Um, And then I have other maybe questions related to the tool, but. Please can you can you tell us a little bit more about how do you ensure accuracy in identifying the right audience or the right creator for the brand?
0: Yeah, it's really tricky, right? Because, I mean, a lot of this stuff is done on gut feel. And it's—it this isn't a new problem. Um, again, I, I give talks fairly frequently about this. And one of my favorite quotes in, in the marketing space was by John Wanamaker, one of the early pioneers of marketing, who says, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is I don't know which half, right? And that's, that's always the way. Like with attribution models and things like that, I think we've got a lot better at being able to identify which half. Um, but more often than not, that happens after the fact, not before. Because you need to see the results, you need to run the campaign, you need to check the attribution, you need to see where those sales came in, and then you can work out whether an individual brand or creator. Uh, whether it was an effective, ma- whether it was an effective pairing, so I think that is definitely a is definitely a challenge. I think one of the easiest ways to do it is to run the campaigns uh, to generate that data and make sure you capture it. Right, that's a really big one. It's great to say, hey, our sales went up. Yes, okay, cool. But which of the which of the things that you did actually moved the needle? And more specifically, if you can, why did it move the needle? Not just which one did it, and that's part of the attribution piece that also has to go hand in hand with any of these sorts of data-led initiatives uh, like we do here at Bed Labs.
2: Got it, got it. So let me take a step back. So one thing is, it's like, hey, here's what our data say, but now you can take that and maybe you know give that a try, but we also have this recommendation of like, let's go run a campaign against the data, and then maybe we're going to figure out, we're going to update it from there, we're going to adjust and recalibrate as needed. Is that correct?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things uh, with several of our clients, what we can do, and it's always worthwhile doing this before you run a campaign is loading as much data as you can into the model uh, and, and optimizing or customizing a model specifically for an individual brand or creator, because that allows us to improve our predictability by using previous performance data and previous campaigns as the basis for those new predictions. A bit like, you know, again, bringing it back to the poker analogy, if you're playing poker against someone and you know that they always bluff, that's really important information to be able to take into consideration in your next game. And it's the same thing here. If you know that already this is a really good creator that works really well for you, brilliant. Let's find some creators that look and behave and have a similar audience to the ones that are already working but let's find the ones that have got an extended audience because you've already reached the audience of the creator that's already working because that's because you've already used them. Let's see if we can expand it out. Find some new audiences to go into.
2: Amazing, awesome. Um, so moving on to a little bit more about adoption and implementation of this tool. So what challenges did you face while building and implementing this tool, in especially especially in terms of data collection and training?
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 a. Uh, while while there is a huge amount of research and money and technical expertise being poured into this from across the industries, it's a hard problem. One of the one of the big unsung heroes of all of these kind of things are the people who are doing the data collection, data cleanup, right? You've heard the I'm sure you've heard the expression garbage in, garbage out. Like that's absolutely true when you're using reinforcement model uh learning. And so that's that's been a really, a really big part of making sure that you've got the quality data. The other one is it's cutting edge technology, making sure that you're investing actually in foundational tech to be able to do these kind of innovations and taking lots of shots, right? When we, but to be able to get to the audience algorithm uh, and the audience clustering system that we built, That wasn't a one and done. We didn't decide that we were going to build it and get it right first time. That was lots of iteration by smart people and lots of pain and late nights and servers and things like that in order to be able to get the accuracy and get the predictability that we needed for it to be a commercializable product. Um, And you see that a lot. There are lots of these companies who are uh, trying to use AI or saying they're using AI, some of them have just got armies of people behind a behind a curtain that are working. Some of them are just have ChatGPT behind the curtain, and they're just basically slightly modifying the information that you give to them and passing it off to ChatGPT, and then returning you a result. And you'd probably better off going directly to the source. Ben Labs, we approach things slightly differently. We have PhDs on staff. We are doing all sorts of research in the back to be able to bring you specific solutions to the specific problems of the marketing and entertainment industry, um, as opposed to the more generalized ones that are already available on the market.
2: All right. One last question about your tool. So how do you see smaller brands without massive data sets benefiting from this tool?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting problem. So the, one of the easiest ways to, to do it is by finding similars. If there's a brand that you want to be like, or you think you are like, or even a creator whose audience really resonates with you, using those similars as kicking off points can be really good, but there's no uh, substitute really for for actually running the campaigns and getting first party data. Because as, as anyone who's done a B testing or any kind of testing knows, like the, the general population will surprise and delight and frustrate you in new and exciting ways every single time. And the only way to get through that is by generating data so that you can see what actually works um, rather than just what you think is going to work.
2: Amazing, thank you. All right. so let me let's let's move on slightly and talk about maybe the future of AI, the future of AI in marketing. So you know how do you and I think you touched upon it but I wrote down this question as you said it how do you see the balance between ai automation and human judgment playing um, out in the future
0: Yeah it's uh it's it's a really tricky one um the there's a i mean generative ai specifically is is bringing up all sorts of very interesting problems um Obviously, the, one of the ones that people talk about a lot is the legal side of it. If an AI is trained on someone's uh, proprietary or, or copyrighted work and then gen- basically recreates it almost verbatim or in the style of, do you owe? Uh, are there legal fees that need to be involved there? All that kind of stuff. But even even just skipping over that piece. Generative AI has really changed the game in terms of the volume of content that can be generated and can be created. It's gone from me needing to spend hours and hours and hours in Photoshop or in front of an easel in order to be able to create the picture that's in my mind, to me just writing a sentence and getting that thing, which is a big it's a big shift. And I can even automate that process. I could have hundreds of these ideas automatically generated, automatically generating images, or indeed entire books And then uploading them to Amazon or uploading them to Getty and then waiting for someone to buy them. The cost to me is almost zero. And so I can just generate hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things. And indeed that has already started to cause problems, right? Uh, I think Amazon is now limiting the amount of self-published books that you can publish in a given week. I think Getty has possibly banned all uh, generative image submissions. Lots of these kind of sites are having these sorts of problems where they're just being absolutely swamped with AI-generated content. And I think it's a it's an interesting problem. It's one that I think was best described by a mathematician in the 1900s um, with something called the infinite monkey theorem. I don't know if you've heard of this, yeah. um, which goes along the lines of, with an infinite number of monkeys, typewriters, and time, one of them will write the complete works of Shakespeare. Hmm. And So with generative AI, we've just given everyone infinite monkeys. The problem is we haven't given them infinite time to be able, and determination to be able to work out if the content they're creating is any good. And that's where I think the creatives specifically are going to be at the forefront of this AI revolution because they have that. They understand what their audience wants because they've been talking to them and working with them for so long. And that's the really critical bit, the decision-making process and the quality control that you put on your output. Mm. Fundamentally, it's your output. That's why your audience likes you is because of the content that you produce. If you outsource that entirely to an AI and it starts r- spitting out rubbish content, they will stop consuming it and they will go elsewhere. So that's, I think, one of the the challenges. And that's why I, think, I don't think we need to be too worried about AI taking people's jobs right now because it, they're not following... A random faceless thing. They're following you for the content. Even if your face is not on camera, even if your brand is not you as a person, the brand still has a persona. It has a reason. It has a it has a style, and that is the thing that the audience is engaging with.
2: Hmm. What are What are you excited about in the future? Like personally, what do you think is is the most exciting mm. part of AI in the next five three years?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Whenever people ask this question, they're always like, what do you think is going to happen in the next 10 years? What's going to happen in the next three years? And I'm like, people were not talking about generative AI 12 months ago. To ask me what I think you, what we're going to be talking about in the next 12 months, mm. I think to, almost any answer is going to be wrong. I do think the one that you brought up earlier, I think is going to be important, which is generative multimodal AI. I think that's really going to be a big thing. There were some interesting tech demos by uh, by OpenAI showing some of the ways that they, that stuff works, which I think is fascinating. The other one is AGI, this whole idea of kind of being able to build something that can solve any sort of problem. That's a big one. How far away that is? Is that going to be like self-driving cars where we're going to get close, but that last 20% or that last 10% is basically unattainable? Maybe. The other one that I'm really interested in, uh, and there's quite a few interesting uh, open source solutions for this already, which is the idea of agents, autonomous agents. So it's taking the the ChatGPT experience to the next level, giving it access to the internet and giving it a little bit of understanding about how to do something. So instead of me, if I need to buy a new pair of headphones, for example, I could say, I really want a new pair of headphones. These are the ones that I currently have. I, this is my price range. I want it to have a review above this and I want it to be able to ship to me within two days. And I could do that, but it would take me three hours of trawling through Amazon and eBay and all these other kind of places. If I could just give that task to a bot that can work on my behalf, it can go off and spend probably only 20 minutes because it's going to do it much faster than I am. But bring back to me a beautifully summarized list with all the pros and cons of all the different devices, all the different things. And that's a relatively simple example. But this autonomous agent, this thing that can go out into the wild and into specifically onto the internet and do something for you and bring you back a concise, considered, uh, summated solution. I think there's some really interesting solutions that are going to be coming out in the next possibly week, six months, year, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I'm really excited for is, is, is the ways that it can make, give me more time to do the things that I want to do and let me just make the decisions, uh, and process the data that I need to see, not have to sift through pages and pages and pages of spam.
2: You know, I think, um, as you gave that last example, two use cases came to me, travel Hey, I'm yeah. gonna go to this city. What should I eat? Where do I stay? These are the things I like, or yeah. this is this is where I've stayed at before, or these are this is things that I enjoy. Can you make a five day itinerary for me, keeping these considerations in mind? That's one yeah. case. The other, maybe smaller use case, but nobody has solved this. Maybe it will f- solve what my wife wants to eat, so she can be like. This is what it is this is what it is this is it and then she can give all the parameters and maybe we can take it from there. So yeah anyways, Jen this is for you. Um all right cool one more thing then so we have we're getting you know towards the end of the conversation what do you think about ethics and risks right? You just touched upon AGI, oh, you just touched upon yeah. all the other things. I'm a big fan of Terminator, so I'm always been like, <laughs> machines are going to beat the other machines. So that's why I'm into AI, because it's like, I got to get into it now. So if I have yeah. to build the computer to then beat the other computer, I got I to gotta be on it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about risks and ethical considerations.
0: Mm. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a hot topic at the moment. The EU is the EU AI law, which is about reducing harm uh, based on these new technologies. I think it is, it's a big consideration. Um, one of the things that I've been really excited to see and really pleased to see is that a lot of these large companies have been releasing uh, both their research and in some cases, even their foundational models as open source. And I think for me, while that comes with risk, obviously because anyone has access to it good and bad actors I think that that sort of disclosure and that sort of proliferation of this technology is going to be critical to keep a a, a reasonable safeguard in place um to your point the whole machines versus machines in Terminator even the, even in the example um you were just and off, not Terminator robotics is a whole nother thing and I'm unfortunately not in that place but in terms of machine versus machine I think that's one of the one of the interesting cat and mouse games that's going to, again, be a big part of our future now. We talked about um, generative AI being able to produce more content than ever before, and we needing to be able to decide what's good and what's bad. The things that can do that at scale are also machines. And so you're going to get very quickly into a uh, an arms race, if you like, between the generators and the people who are trying to work out if it's generated. Or indeed, with the autonomous agents that you were just describing uh, in terms of, I want to go to Rome, right? And I want you to make me a five-day itinerary. OK, if it depends whose bot you ask, right? If you ask the Rome's public tourist board, they may give you one answer. If you ask Lycos or another hotel chain what they, what they think, they're going to give you a different answer. And so by allowing these technologies to proliferate and allowing them to be personalized to me, if I own the technology, if I own the data, and that's a really key part, then I can be the one that that controls and manages the incentive model and the, the the success criteria of that agent. So yes, it wants to do the best thing for me, but is it secretly doing the best thing for the tourist board? Or is it secretly doing the best thing for, I don't know, the the milk lobby or whatever it might be, whoever may have influenced that model. And so I think that's going to be a really important part of, in terms of the ethics, who has your data, who is able to use your data, and how is the AI, who's, who's ultimately deciding what good looks like to the AI?
2: Got it. Got it. One more thing that we didn't talk about in terms of future expectations was how is AI changing development and and like coding and things like that? And you know, before we go, I think it would be great to hear your opinion since you are so close to it. How do how do you think AI can like transform developers' careers moving forward?
0: It's a really it's a it's a it's 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 an evolving solution and an evolving problem, right? Uh We've been using ChatGPT for quite a while. Sorry, uh, Copilot, which is the version of ChatGPT that's been specifically trained on the GitHub code base. And it's it's phenomenal. It's absolutely amazing. Um, it's, it's, it's like having a really smart person sat next to you when you're coding. Uh, and they've already thought of what you're about to type and they just put it on the screen as a little shadow. So you start typing out the thing that you need and it's just like, oh, autocomplete. Oh, autocomplete. And it solves all sorts of problems for you, which means that... Developers who might not be familiar in a given language, let's say uh, they're familiar with PHP and they're going to start working in Java, they can all of a sudden go from naught to competent in a much, much shorter time than they would have previously been able to. They understand the fundamental underpinnings of how to program, but not the nuances and the syntax of an individual language. They can jump straight past that. However, and that's great, and that's really good, and I've used that personally. We need to use a new framework. I was up and running within a couple of hours because I was able to help ask ChatGPT or ask Copilot to help me when I would get stuck. And it's 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 really changing. No one's using Stack Overflow ever anymore. Everyone's mm. just asking uh, uh, large language models. But it has the same problem of Stack Overflow, which is uh, what a lot of developers used to do uh, only only a year ago, was when they would find a problem, they would Google for it. They would go and find an answer more often than op- not on, on a website. They would copy a big bunch of code, drop it into their IDE, run it, and it would work. And they'd be like, cool, job done, excellent, cool, I can, go, I can clock off early or I can move on to the next problem, great, finished. Which is fine until it goes wrong. When that piece of code then goes wrong, you now need someone who's smarter than the person who wrote it in the first place to debug it. Um. And when the person who wrote it in the first place is an AI... It can start to get a little bit hairy because now you're trying to ask the AI to debug itself and it may not be able to do so. And now you're stuck. Now you've got bits of your code base that are written by someone that you don't know and who know that no one understands. Um and from a development perspective, that's quite a scary place to be. So I think there's 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 swings and roundabouts to to this new technology, but certainly for me it's been it's been it's been very, very powerful.
2: Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, So, I mean, I'm guessing now as we go towards the end that maybe this is one of the last questions, this is like, what skills or knowledge would you recommend for developers looking to get into AI development?
0: So into AI development specifically, um, understanding a lot of the fundamentals is probably going to be really important. Um, Mm. Things like, uh, you know, just how convolutional neural networks work, the that how you train them, even if it's on a really small level, getting those early foundational pieces that let you understand what it's doing is gonna be really important. Um, as I sort of alluded to as well earlier in the conversation, a big part of the the, the, the unglamorous part of AI building and AI train and all this kind of stuff is data cleanup, taking data from different sources and turning it into something that's actually useful in order to build a to train a model using. Um, and so data engineers, DevOps, your ability to uh, spin up a server and do so securely, those are all really key skills, uh, certainly when you're starting out uh, in the career.
2: Got it. Any other advice for general population wanting to get into AI? And this is our last question. It's, it's been really exciting. General
0: advice for the population wanting to get into AI. Um I think play with it is 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 a pretty good one. Um go and ask it a question, see what it can do. You'll be amazed and you'll be surprised and delighted. But as I kind of said, it comes back to your personal judgment. The thing I always I challenge people to do is, especially if you if you grew up in a relatively small town, ask a large language model what it knows about your small town or yeah. about something that you know pretty well that's maybe not that's not hugely covered on the internet. Because what will happen is it will confidently tell you. I don't know, five facts. The first two will be true. The next two... Maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I, I had to phone a friend who still lived in my hometown to ask him about some of the things it was saying because I couldn't trust my own memory. I was being gaslit by the large language model. like, And that's the problem. They are statistically predictable and statistically plausible answers, but they may or may not be true. And so this hallucination problem is one that I think that the we're going to have to, to solve uh, fairly soon. So, yeah, go play with it, but don't necessarily completely trust it. Trust, but verify.
2: Amazing. Particularly to you, as we close this episode, we are going to have an a special Q&A portion for this. So, to any listener that is out there, if you guys want to you know, benefit from the expertise of Alex McFadden here, both um, shows overall what AI is, how he's building through the usage of AI, or anything else, Please, uh, we're going to have a special Q&A episode in the future with Alex McFadden. And um, we're very, very excited to do so. So feel free to send in your questions and you know we'll take it from there. Well, Alex, it's been a pleasure uh, to have you here. I really enjoy it. I've learned a lot today. I hope the audience does that too. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. You could look for Alex McFadden on LinkedIn and you know learn a lot more about what's going on. Um, but in the meantime, thank you so much for coming to another episode of the Ben Labs AI Marketing Podcast. Uh, please take care of yourself and each other. Thank you so much. Hey, you. All right. Well, folks, that brings us to the close of another enlightening episode of the AI Marketing Lab by Ben Labs. I truly hope our exploration into the realm of AI-driven marketing resonated with you as much as it did with me. Before we wrap up, let's talk about Ben Labs. If you are a marketer, CEO, founder, gearing up for your next big campaign, here's why you need to learn more about Ben Labs. First, Ben Labs will allow you to dive deep into your audience psyche, seriously. Our AI will allow you to understand and identify new audiences that you've never had access to before. Second, we'll help you find creators that align with your vision. And third, we help you craft content that doesn't just blend in and it stands out. Those are three of many things that we can afford to do. So please take a look at Ben Labs. With that being said, Ben Labs is all about learning from the data that speaks volumes, creating a tailored plan just for your brand and producing content that's simply irresistible. Modeling to finesse your strategy and predict wins and scaling with AI to take your campaigns to the next level. Curious? Check out Ven Labs and transform the way you market. Lastly, if our insights struck a chord, hit that subscribe button on your go-to podcast platform. Get front-row access every time we release a new episode. Enjoyed us? Leave a rating or a review, as it helps others find us, and it means the world to us.